For a few weeks now, we have been working through um, what I intend to be a fairly short series on some of the prophecies about the coming of Jesus. Jesus came fairly late in biblical history. The Bible's history spans some thousands of years, um, but Jesus came at the very end of that period, and uh, the books that were written around at the time of his life, and just shortly afterwards, actually, um, constitute the New Testament. But the majority of the Bible written before his coming was written in Hebrew by the, the Hebrew people that we, call, we know known as the Jews today. And um, dotted through that, those scriptures are probably thousands of allusions to Jesus. But some of them become more explicit, um, actual prophecies about his coming. And uh, it's very hard to choose which ones that you're going to look at on a series like this, um, because when you put them all together, you have something of a photo fit of uh, Jesus before he arrived. But what I have done is decided to look at some of the ones that look at key aspects of his nature. We began looking at him as the, the serpent crusher, Genesis 3, the earliest prophecy about the need for a savior. And it speaks of the offspring, the seed of the woman, the seed of Eve, a descendant of Eve, crushing the serpent's head, defeating our enemy. And an extraordinary um, clue about the coming of Jesus and what he would achieve on the cross. We looked after that at Deuteronomy 18. And Moses speaking about a prophet who would come, someone who would reveal God to us. And we were considering how uniquely Jesus was capable of that, in that he came as we're told as being the very embodiment of revelation because he was God in human flesh. Prophets usually just relay words from God. Jesus was the word of God. And he fulfills it in the most perfect way. And I'm particularly interested this evening in a theme about Christ, which is really the central heartbeat of what it means uh, in his title, the Messiah, that he was to be a king. Messiah means anointed one. It's the word Christ in Greek, or Christos, and it means somebody who would be anointed to rule, a king, a governor, a great ruler or emperor. And so we're looking at Psalm 110. The Psalms often have little titles, which typically in English Bibles are printed in tiny print above the first verse, but which in the Hebrew um, show with no distinction. They just are part of the psalm. You wouldn't know it looking at the, Greek text, in the, the English text, but in the Hebrew you can see it. And so this Psalm 110 begins just above probably where the number is printed, and it says this, a psalm of David. And that's crucial to what we are going to be thinking about this evening. A psalm of David. And let me read it to you. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgments among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will he'll drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, I want you to understand as we open this up, 
The psalm, of course, is written by David. David lived about a thousand years before Jesus. David was the second king of Israel. There had been before that a traveling people and, uh, who had been liberated from Egypt, and they had come into the land of Canaan, which is modern-day Israel and Palestine. And there they had appointed a king, King Saul, and after him came King David. And King David, in many ways, is the, the most uh, prominent of all the kings who lived uh, from that point onwards, and he, he, he cast a long shadow. And with David came the promise that one of his descendants would rule on his throne forever. God spoke to David and told him that, that his son, one of his sons, would rule forever. And that's really the heartbeat of uh, messianic hope that built up over those thousand years between David's rule and the coming of Jesus, that his, one of the descendants of David would sit on his throne forever. And so David wrote this psalm, and everybody knew, uh, who knew of what God had promised to David would have known who it was speaking about. They knew it was speaking about the coming Messiah. But he, he wrote a psalm. And the thing about David is that he, he was a songwriter. Um, he was a very interesting character who was very fierce in battle, um, learning his craft on the fields, um, beating wolves and lions and bears away from his flock of sheep and killing them. But he, he also then learned the art of war and was a very successful general. And you can feel something of his, his understanding of war coming through in this short psalm. And he was a songwriter. And a number of his songs, the psalms, have a very, very forward-looking prophetic edge to them. There's a psalm that predicts the resurrection of the Messiah in Psalm 16. And there are psalms that resonate prophetically about the coming Messiah in different ways. But this one is very significant, this Psalm 110, simply because it's quoted more than any of the others in the New Testament. A number of its verses appear multiple times throughout the New Testament as being very significant in describing the coming of Jesus. So let's dig into this. What kind of psalm is it? And really the answer is, it's about conquest. It's about military conquest. As with uh, Christ's teachings, which we were thinking about just last week when Jeremy was talking about how Christ presents himself as the judge who splits the earth. This is what this psalm is about. He talks about the coming of a king who would split the earth down the middle, dividing people from people. And there are two kinds of people that are in this psalm. There are those who are the footstools and those who are the foot soldiers. The footstools are those who, it says in verse 2, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And in Middle Eastern mindset, the idea of being put under someone's feet is the place of most humiliating subjection. Just over the page in Psalm 108, God had said about Edom, one of Israel's enemies, he says, upon Edom I cast my shoe. I remember back in 2002, 2003, Shortly after 9-11 had happened, and the U.S. launched their, their massive campaign against Saddam Hussein in Iraq, and very quickly things went south for Saddam Hussein, and he had to flee, and he left Baghdad. You, you may have seen the footage of how the, popular, the population of Baghdad arose in celebration at Saddam's fall. And one of the things they did was they took the shoes off their feet 
And as they pulled his statue down in the middle of Baghdad, they beat it with their shoes, presenting the soles of their shoes to his face, to his head, to his body, so as to humiliate him in a way that makes a lot more sense to a Middle Easterner than it does to us. And so here in the psalm he says, on the one hand there are those who will become a footstool for the feet of this Messiah. But he also describes another kind of person. He says in verse, uh, in verse, uh, verse 3, he says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. This, this phrase, they will offer themselves freely, occurs just one other time in the Old Testament, and it's in a military context. You know, when, you, when a nation goes to war, you can either conscript men, forcing them to leave home, family, and to come and fight, or they can volunteer. And the picture is here of people who are eager to step up because they care and love this king, and they believe in him. And he says, they will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. They'll see that he is clearly capable of winning, and they want to be on his side. And so the psalm carries with it this idea that someone would ride into history, as it were, or into the course of human history and into the world and split the world in two, bringing division among peoples, and which is exactly what Jesus said he came to do. He said, I came to bring the sword. He talked about separating families, husbands, wives, fathers, and children, bringing division among them for the simple reason that you really are either for Christ or against him. And so the psalm has this edge to it. It's an edge which forces you to consider yourself, look at your response to Jesus, and ask whether you have surrendered your life to him. Very strong word, isn't it? The word surrender. You can't surrender by halves. You can't surrender with your fingers crossed behind your back. You can't surrender just a part of you. To surrender means to offer yourself unreservedly under the rule and authority of someone greater than you. It's what you do at the beginning of the Christian life. Those of you who call yourself Christian will understand that there has been a moment in your life where you surrendered to Jesus. But it's also an ongoing experience in the Christian faith. That day after day you take up your cross, Jesus said, to follow him. Which means that he calls for renewal and constant willingness to surrender yourself to Jesus. And to understand that within the boundaries of his rule and authority, which actually has no boundaries, he calls for total surrender. He calls for the whole of your life. And my question to you as we start this is, have you, have you done that? Are you doing that? Are you conscious of a serious willingness to offer Christ all of your life with total obedience and without hesitation? I don't think that the picture of Jesus as king calls for anything less than that. Why would you do it? I think there are lots of bad reasons to do it. I think some people make a half-hearted commitment to Jesus without full conviction. Sometimes it's driven by emotion. I've been in many contexts where people have made emotional responses to Jesus. They've said, maybe because they were caught up in the emotion of a meeting, they said, I want to follow Jesus. But days or weeks later have decided against that because it was pure emotion. 
There's nothing wrong with emotion. Emotion is part of, of the commitment that you must make to Christ. But if you only follow him because of sentiment, it won't last. Jesus himself said that. He made it clear on a number of occasions. It's not good enough to follow him for that. It's not good enough to follow him because of peer pressure. Sometimes, you know, even if we grow up, we're still vulnerable to peer pressure, aren't we? We still all basically like the same things and dress the same ways and, you know, I'm still trying to get the guys to grow beards here. and Only one or two are actually taking up that up. But, you know, we all basically move along as, as it, with, with the crowd, don't we? And people become, people are often driven away from Christianity because of peer pressure. They think, well, if I follow this, then I will, I'll surely lose all my friends and all my credibility in life. But others actually are drawn into it because of that very same thing. And, and either way, it's, it's not enough. It can't be enough. Some people... Make a commitment to Christ which is unthinking and automatic simply because, you know, just think I've always been a Christian. I think this is increasingly becoming more common for us as a church, partly because we're drawing people from all around the world. And yes, it's uncommon in our context, in modern day secular, secular Britain, for somebody to grow up in a, with the expectation that they'd be Christian. But some of you have come from backgrounds and families where that was the expectation. And you can't think of a good reason why you are a Christian other than that you've always done it. It's not good enough. And you ask yourself, why not? And the the simple answer is because it costs too much and it's too difficult. To follow Jesus in the way that I am advocating, to give him the the entirety of your life, is too difficult unless you have a deep enough, substantial enough reason to do so. I think those reasons exist, by the way. I'd have to resign if I didn't. (laughs) I do think those reasons exist. But I also think it's wrong to follow him for anything less than absolute, full conviction that he is who he says he is and that he is this king that's being described here. And I want to show you a couple of the reasons that I think are compelling reasons for giving Jesus everything. Next week I want to pick up a third great theme that this psalm introduces, which is just such a beautiful and sweet theme, the idea of him as our priest, But I'm going to leave that aside for today and just deal with a couple of the aspects of what this psalm, the surprising ideas this psalm introduced, which no one had thought of before David wrote it down. And here's the first. David showed us that Jesus, his great son, his great descendant, is Lord. It may not sound like much to you, and it was barely noticeable for a thousand years when people were reading and reciting this psalm but it has earth-shattering consequences when you understand what David meant and what he understood when he wrote it down. I think Jesus himself is the first one to actually draw attention to what David has said here. There are a couple of things you've got to notice as it opens, as I have drew your attention to earlier. It's a psalm of David. So we know who it's written by, and we, knew, we know what he understood about his progeny, about his coming son who would rule on his throne forever. But the next line is very crucial. It's the, the Lord says to my Lord. The Lord says to my Lord. That's how the psalm opens. Now, Matthew 22, Jesus, who has noticed this, quizzes the Pharisees who are experts in the Scriptures. And he asks them this question. He says, whose son is the Christ. 
And the answer, the correct answer, the answer which everybody knew a thousand years on from David was, he's David's son. That's the answer they give. He's going to be a descendant of David. Now Jesus actually does claim, have a rightful claim to that. He was descended from David. But Jesus then puts it back on them and asks them this question. How is it then that David, in the Spirit, or by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Spirit, prophetically, he's saying, calls him Lord? And Jesus' audience immediately grasped the weight of what he was asking. It only makes sense, actually, again, in an Eastern honor culture. We, many of us, grew up in the West, and we grew up watching The Simpsons, where Bart calls his dad Homer. And of course, that's, it's a cartoon that could only have been created in the West because of the subversive nature of that and the dismantling of, of fatherly authority. You think, well, it's just The Simpsons. Yeah, but it's also the beginning of family breakdown. And it's also the beginning of, of the erosion of society. Whereas when I go to the Far East, where we have many relatives, we... You know, I go with my in-law. I've been with my in-laws once or twice. And you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't believe it. But I, I, have, to, you know, I have to follow a certain order, certain rules that includes the giving of titles to all the relatives, even the ones who are younger than me but who rank higher than me in the family. I have to address this one as first aunt or second aunt. Or I have to do it in Cantonese as well, which I'm not going to do for you today. And it's, it's a mouthful, and I have to figure it out. And often there's a little debate for a little while just to make sure we get the title right before we say hello to them. Because, you know, you can forget when it's cousin of first, child of first cousin once removed or something like that. But you have to get it right. Uh, on one occasion, I got it wrong, and I called one of the female cousins who is about the same age as me by her first name. She reprimanded me on the spot because it was dishonoring to her. Now, of course, when Jesus was speaking here, and he's asking the question, whose son is David talking to? When he calls him Lord, the answer, the answer that the New Testament shows us is that he's the son of God. It's the only reason David would have addressed one of his own descendants as Lord. Now, this is the answer which is emphatically revealed for us throughout the pages of the New Testament. But in a growing way, it begins, weirdly enough, with with the demons. It's the demons who often, in being confronted by Jesus, address him as son of the Most High God. Because they could see what human eyes could not see. It's one of my favorite stories later in the book of Acts, when Paul visits a town and and, um, there's these exorcists there, the seven sons of Sceva. And these guys who are kind of Jewish exorcists are trying to, to, to cast out a demon from a guy. And uh, the, demon, the demon speaks through the man and says, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And then he beats up all these seven brothers. And it's just, it's just a brilliant little story, just one of those fun little things that happens in the Bible from time to time. I remember on, um, when I was a kid, my, uh, my uncle was looking after us when my parents were away for a couple of days. And it happened to coincide with Halloween. And um, these kids came round to the door and they... They were doing, as you do, the trick-or-treat thing. Trick-or-treat, they rang the doorbell and uh, said the words. And my uncle, who was about six foot, three or four, maybe taller, and with a big voice, 
And uh, he was headmaster of my school and uh, a very commanding presence. He opened the door to these tiny little six or seven-year-olds. And as they said, trick or treat, he just replied, Jesus is Lord. At which point, the little demons turned and fled, and uh, they ran away as quick as they could. But throughout the New Testament, first the evil spirits see it. Then, then Christ's own followers begin to see it, but only partially and never with quite full understanding until he's raised from the dead. I love that because the New Testament is so honest about the doubts and the questioning and the, 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 the non-comprehension of even Jesus' closest followers. It doesn't, doesn't tell us that Jesus rode onto the scene and everyone just bowed down. It tells us that even his closest followers took a while. They took their time sometimes to become convinced, though convinced they did become. And Thomas is one of the great examples of this. You know how he was so doubtful that Jesus had been raised from the dead. He said, I want to see the holes in his hands and his side. And when Jesus appears to Thomas, and Thomas touches his body and feels and realizes that this is the guy I saw die on the cross, and look at him, he still bears the scars, but he's alive in front of me. He bows down and he falls on his face and says, my Lord and my God. And the word is crucial, he calls him my Lord. Blasphemous if Jesus isn't the Son of God. And as the story unfolds, what the New Testament shows us is that people, people must come to the acknowledgement of the Lordship of Jesus. To be a Christian, almost by definition, is to be able to call Jesus Lord in your life. And it's partly about intellectual assent. You've seen who He is, and you believe that it is true. But it's also about willingness the summoning of every fiber of your being to say, I am willing to serve you. If you are Lord, and that is true, factually true, then all of my life must align with that great reality. And as the story unfolds and is unfolding even to this day, the Bible tells us that people come to that point in one of two ways, either willingly and with full conviction. Whether, for example, you see the response of the crowds when Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost and says that God has made this one Lord. And they must, and they respond and they say, yes, yes, he is Lord. Or unwillingly. In Philippians 2, Paul describes this. He says that God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The book of Philippians and what Paul is describing there is he's, he's talking about an inevitable climax to all of history. The way everything is moving towards this great moment when there will not be one person left on the face of the earth who does not acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. And they will call him Lord, even if it means their own ruin. You might think that sounds distasteful, especially when you've read the psalm and you read of the, the conquest of this son. You may think it seems threatening or unfair. But part of that, I think, is because we have an automatic tendency to totally misunderstand life and existence. And here's what I mean. 
all of us are born with a very me-centered view of our lives and of existence, aren't we? I love how David Foster Wallace put it in his famous speech, This is Water. I'm not quite sure what his status was in relation to God. He's not particularly public about whether he had a faith or not. And I've heard him described as an atheist and as a Christian, and I have no idea where he fell on that spectrum. But he had some provocative thoughts to say in this famous speech, which he opened with the you know, little parable of the fish swimming in the water. One turns to the other and says, how's the water? And the other fish turns and says, what the hell is water? And he's showing us that there are things that we just don't see because we can only look through the perspective of the eyes that we have. We can't see reality objectively from the outside looking in. You can only see it through your eyes. And he says, he gives an example of that. He says, here's just one example of the total wrongness of something I tend to be automatically sure of. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe. Isn't that true? Everything in your experience supports that conclusion, that you are the center of the universe. That I am the absolute center and the realest, most vivid and important person in existence. It's true, isn't it? It's what we feel automatically, that I am the most important person on the face of this planet. Because I can only look at the planet through the eyes I've been given. It says we rarely think about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive. There's only one or two people I've ever seen or met who go around actually verbally, practically saying this. But he says it's pretty much the same for all of us. It's our default setting. It's hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There is no experience you have had that you are not the absolute center of. The world as you experience it is there in front of you or behind you, to the left or the right of you, on your TV or your monitor, and so on, he says. And so we, we're born into a world in which we think of life through my eyes and think I am the center of things. And it seems very, very, very unreasonable of God to have appointed a king to which I must bow or else. But I think this is because we get things entirely upside down. Think of it like this. The moment we are um, we're renovating our, 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 our flat, it's been a, a few-month project. One, as we're nearing the end, as we're nearing the completion, we're thinking about some of the, the soft furnishings, the ways of finishing this place. And one of the things I've had my heart set on is, is finding the right rug to go in the middle of my living room. And of course, this is the natural order of things. You have a nice home, and then you think, well, I'd like, I'd like a nice rug to go in my home. And uh, I know some of you can hardly believe that I take an interest in these things. But believe me, I, I care about these sorts of things. I'm a very sensitive man. And um, so, so this is the order of things. But it's not always the case. Sometimes it's the very opposite way around. Sometimes you could, you could own an object that has almost, is almost priceless, perhaps even a rug. Some of them actually cost an enormous amount of money, and, as I've discovered. And... Um, you, you, might, you might even take it upon yourself to build a structure to house this object rather than the other way around. You ever visited the Victoria and Albert Museum? That whole museum exists for that very purpose because, well, we have these objects and they are extraordinarily, even, they're priceless. You can't put a value on them. An ancient Persian rug right in the heart of the museum. It's enormous. It would 
too big for my flat, unfortunately, but it is very beautiful. <laughs> the suits of armor from Japan and, and uh, furniture made in Korea and all these kinds of things. And they're, they're breathtaking and they're beautiful and they're irreplaceable. And th- they were not purchased to make the museum look, look nice. No, the museum, even though it's, it's one of the most beautiful buildings in London, the museum actually was built to house the objects. And so it is with life and existence. You know, all of creation, all of creation was built for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the heart of everything. It wasn't the other way around. It wasn't as though God made us and then he gave us someone to worship just as a kind of addendum or an add-on to our lives. No, he, the Son existed at the Father's right hand from before the creation of the world and God made a world in such a way that through its history and through the weaving of God's plan and the narrative that he created, all things would lead up to the great conclusion that every knee would bow to the Lord Jesus Christ and call him Lord. This is what David tells us. The Lord, Yahweh, the living God, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand. And if even David has to bow to this Lord, then friends, we do too. Here's my other great reason. This Lord, this Jesus, this King who David is describing has a claim on the whole world. This psalm is a a prediction of a conquest that the king would make. You can see it come through in a number of the verses, like verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. That's God's voice speaking to his son, this great king. Rule. It's yours for the taking, he's saying. Verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, and so on. And I wonder what you make of this when you read this image of this conquering military hero who would come and who has his eyes set not just on Israel and that one people group, but on the entirety of the planet, on the nations, on the whole world, with his scepter going out, his rule, the symbol of his authority over the entire world. And it seems to us, at first glance, somewhat unreasonable and somewhat harsh, the language Speaking of the corpses and the blood dripping and all these kinds of things. You think, well, why, why does it seem so violent and so, so unreasonable, given that we are a generation that's grown up largely unexperienced in, in anything to do with war and largely pacifistic in our tendencies? And I think part of the way you understand it, of course, is that the prophets could only speak from the particular angles and experiences that they knew in life. David was a military man. And they often looked ahead into the distance and they saw shadows and figures of things which they may not have understood perfectly. It's like if somebody were to come forward in time and witness people in our day and age, they might, they might describe what's happening today and they say, it's amazing. People, people talk to each other even when they're not together. They just say words into the air, and somehow someone answers them, and they have a conversation into midair. And uh, it must be some kind of, you know, construe it incorrectly, saying, well, it's, it must be some kind of telepathic ability that modern people have. Of course, that's not the, the, the case at all. We, we have mobile phones, and we can explain it, and it all abides by the laws of science and the rest of it. Now, in some ways, 
But David's image, his vision of the future is rather like that. What he sees is a king subduing the entire earth. And as a military man, he speaks with the language of, of war. But when you read the page of the New Testament, you quickly discover that the way that Christ would conquer would not be at the edge of the sword. Of course not. And those Christians who have understood it that way have been sadly and grievously mistaken and led to many discreditable issues in, in, in Christian history. Christ would come not by conquering at the edge of the sword, but by conquering hearts. That's what the Bible shows us. And of course, in some ways, it's exactly like a military victory. When armies win, they win by killing, subduing. They bring about death so that something new can come to life, a new order, a new kingdom, a new system of rule. When Jesus began his kingly rule, he conquered and he brought similarly a kind of death so that new life could arise. Here's how he described it. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, his gallows, his means of killing himself and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. In other words, if you cling to this earthly life as though this is so important to me, my precious, and you just kind of turn in on yourself and away from God, he says, it's all going to be taken away from you. But then he says, but whoever loses his life, whoever dies, he's saying, for my sake and the gospel will save it. And he's not talking about something extraordinary that happens in the lives of just very weird and radical Christians who run to death for whatever reason. He's talking about the ordinary experience of coming to believe that Jesus is Lord. He says, you have to die. Have you died? Are you dying to yourself? Is the life of Christ living in you? And so this begins to make sense of what David was seeing. He's seeing a king whose authority would touch the furthest reaches of this globe that we live upon. And that in and of itself is an extraordinary thing. It's extraordinary when you consider biblical history. Because how did this all begin? Well, it began with just one married couple, Abraham and Sarah. Abraham was fairly wealthy, but he was childless. And after God spoke to him, and God said to him, I'm going to, through you, I'm going, to, I'm going to bless the nations of the entire world. And it just seems mind-bogglingly unlikely from the perspective of a man living in a little town called Ur of the Chaldeans of the, in the Mesopotamian Crescent. But look at the impact that one family has had. Even from the perspective of David, many hundreds of years after that. Even from the perspective of David, these kinds of global ambitions really don't make a lot of sense. David was, he was important, but he was really only the king of a relatively small nation and a very localized little empire he had. Just a few million people, I suppose. And to talk about touching the furthest reaches of the earth made no sense. And yet, here we are. 2018, and we're looking back, and what do we see? 
we see how the things that God said to Abraham, that through you I'll bless all the nations of the world, are coming true. And the things he said to David at another point in history about a king you would put on the throne, who would, whose rule would begin to touch every, every corner of this globe, they're coming true. And God's intention to, bring into, to surrender all peoples on the face of the earth that they might come to know Jesus as Lord, they're coming true. So I want to ask you, friends, can you see how everything that David saw about this Lord, this Son of God, who would rule and reign, whose rule would have global reach, can you see how everything is unfolding as predicted? A son was born. He was descended from David. He was divine. He had global ambitions. You don't have to read much of Jesus' preaching to realize that he had extraordinary confidence in the growth of his kingdom. Everyone must have scoffed and laughed at him when he said this stuff because he had a few ragtag followers, but he talked about global rule. And the nations have begun to surrender. And I ask you, do you see the personal implications this has for you? Because here's, here's, here's the nub of it. If Christ owns everything, then he owns you, because you're within the scope of everything, right? When I, was, when I was young, back in the early 90s, before some of you were even a twinkle in your daddy's eye, but I was uh, about 10 years of age at the time, my, um, we, my dad was driving a clapped out old VW Golf, and um, a very generous man in the church, who was also fairly wealthy, decided he wanted to replace the family car. So he said to dad, go and buy whatever you want. And dad had been walking past the Audi garage a number of times. And he didn't set his sights down low. He wasn't after like a Ford or something like that. He was like, no, I'm going to ask for an Audi. And the guy said, okay, go for it. So he went down to the Audi dealership and he ordered, he asked, he, um, he had his eyes set on the Audi 80. And this, particular, this particular model had been mispriced on the, on the forecourt of the garage, and they'd, they'd marked it down lower than it should have been sold. And the dealer kind of scratched his head, but he kind of acknowledged that since that was the price that was written, he'd have to sell it for that price, and so the deal was done. But before we came to take the car away, he replaced the radio, thinking that Dad wouldn't notice that he'd taken out the nice expensive one and put in cheap one in, in replacement, just to try and claw back a little bit, of, a few of his losses in this deal that he'd done that wasn't really going to work out so well for him. But dad noticed, made him reverse it, because once you've bought the whole thing, everything inside it is yours, right? That's how it works. And so it is with Christ. Jesus has come into this world, and he is, he's redeemed the whole world. That's what the Bible tells us, which means that he has a claim on every one of us. And not just on a few of us, not just on parts of our lives, but he's the rightful owner. There's a little parable which Jesus tells, which is familiar to us. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found. doesn't tell us how he found it. He tripped over it, was just randomly digging in a field one day and stumbled across it. We don't know. He found it. But anyway, this is what he did. He says he covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. Empties his house, sells his house, sells a whole lot, sells, sells his, his kids for all we know. He sells everything 
and he buys that field. Because he thinks, if I have the field, then I have the treasure in it, and it's all going to be worth it anyway, because it's worth more than everything I had. And it's logical. It makes sense. And often we read it and we think, well, that's about what it's like when a person discovers Jesus. I think you can understand it that way. Everything you have is as nothing compared with the value of possessing Christ. Absolutely. But maybe also we can read it the other way. Jesus doesn't specify. Maybe Jesus is the man. The earth is the field. You are the treasure. When Christ came into this earth, he, as it were, sold all that he had. He gave up his riches in heaven, and he laid his own life down on the cross so that he could redeem the world. But not just so that he could own mountains and trees and dolphins and whatever else, which was his anyway, but so that he could have the treasure, he could have the people, that he could have you. And Christ wants you entirely. That's the essence of what David is saying. He's worthy of it. What does he demand of you? Listen, regardless of whether you consider yourself a Christian or a non-Christian, really the demands are exactly the same. Firstly, he demands reverence. You see the reverence in David's own lips, don't you? My Lord, the Lord says to my Lord. It's a kind of a, a mixture of fear and love. And fear is appropriate when you come to Christ. But also... You feel affection for him because he is our older brother. Because he has given himself for us. And you love him because he loved you first. And I want to ask you, do you feel that you reverence Christ? Are you a worshiper? Do you consciously and deliberately bow before him? Do you kneel before him? Do you come to pray to him each day and Acknowledge his greatness in your life. Acknowledge his worthiness. Do you reverence Jesus? If you do not, then you're not a Christian. A Christian is someone who puts Christ in that seat of affection and adoration in their life. You reverence him. Here's another thing. He calls for obedience. We're not to be a law unto ourselves. When you come under the king's authority, you come under his rule in your life. And part of what that means is that there are things that you do which conflict with the laws of the kingdom, the ways of the kingdom. And your conscience tells you that they conflict and that the king is not pleased with the things that you're doing. This is what sin is like in the heart. Sin is to go against the flow and the grain of what Jesus says is right, and what it means to live within his rule and authority in your life. And friend, if you are conscious, if you know of sin in your life, which you need to uproot, repent of, and kill, then do it. The New Testament tells us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And it means you see the sin in your life like a snake in the ground, you stamp on its head. Not because you are great and powerful in yourself, but because Christ defeated your sin on the cross when he was killed there. So he calls for obedience. He calls, in the psalm it's described like this, your people offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. The picture is of a, a great horde, a kind of military group assembled in holy garments, perhaps dressed like priests themselves, perhaps dressed in white, but certainly willing to rid themselves of sin so that they can stand worthily among God's people. 
The New Testament calls us to live lives worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Jesus wants your obedience. And he wants you to kill your sin so that you can follow him and call him king. Call him Lord. Here's the last thing he wants. He wants your service. I don't think Jesus needs you and I don't think he needs me either. I think I'm very replaceable. He doesn't need us. Jesus is perfectly competent in himself. He can achieve whatever he wants to achieve and he can do it without our help. However, for reasons which I don't fully understand, he privileges us with the opportunity to be his servants. I love this picture. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Which is to say, that what David is urging upon God's people is that when this king should take his rightful place of authority, everybody who has the privilege of coming under his rule and reign should come giving everything that they have to this Lord and holding none of it back. I think this is what it means to live a life that is abandoned to Jesus. Nothing you grasp onto that you are not willing to let go of for the sake of obedience to him. Everything you have is belonging to him. You recognize that he wired you a particular way with certain talents and abilities, and you say, Lord Jesus, you can take them all because I'm offering myself freely on the day of your power. He wants your time. He wants your ambitions. He doesn't want ambitions that that cut across his purposes and are unsubmitted to his lordship in your life. It's not that he wants to cut your life short and make it miserable or make you um, in some way useless. He wants rather you to experience the fullness of what life is like when you say to him, yes, I will completely offer myself to you and hold nothing back. Often this is a painful experience for people. It's painful when it means saying no to certain dreams you held. It's painful when it means saying no to marriage, if a marriage was not going to give God glory. You see this conflict in people's lives when they debate in in themselves. You know, I know that Jesus doesn't want me to marry this person, but I'm... I so don't want to be lonely for the rest of my life. And so there's this tension. Really, it's a tension over whether Jesus is king or not. Whether you think he's a king who loves you, actually. You see this tension in the lives of people who are single and who are running after kind of fulfillment and sexual fulfillment with whoever. I have these conversations with, with people and you know, what we're trying to help you see all the time is that Jesus is Lord, and friend, you will be happier when you surrender your life to Him. Whatever the conflict is in your life, you know the, the pain is real, right? But Jesus wants all of you, and He wants you entirely. He wants your time, your resources, your energy, and He wants you to hold nothing back. I think that the demands He made of the world when He said, if you want to follow me, you better pick up your cross and march. I think this is what he was describing. So friend, at the heart of our faith is the realization, the acknowledgement, the understanding that Jesus is a king. A king who cannot be fooled. A king who cannot be confused and who sees all. 
and whose gracious rule is for our good. So I want to invite you to just come and acknowledge this now. Why don't we bow our heads? It may be the case that you're not a Christian. Maybe you want to become a Christian. And it is simple as the saying, Lord, I, I, I confess that I'm a sinner and I want to make you king of my life. Forgive me. It's as simple as that. But more than likely, most of us, we are Christians. We love Jesus, but yet we experience the conflict in day-to-day lives. We know that we're, we're called to surrender and submit because he is Lord and because his, his rule knows no limits and knows no end. It spans the earth. And yet we hide in a corner as though he's somehow going to overlook me and not notice that I'm doing my own thing. Not notice that there's rebellion in my heart, there's conflict, and I'm, I'm torn. Jesus notices. He sees all, and he loves you. He's compassionate to you. He wants to forgive you. But he wants you to hold nothing back. I want to leave a couple of moments of quiet for you to respond as you need to. To ask yourself, well, if Jesus is king, and I believe it's true, what must I do?